Amen. Thank you, Kevin, so much. My name is Matt Hook, and this is my lovely wife, Lee Hook. <laughs> and we are here to learn about God's equipping and about uh, the armor of God and what God says to do, because there is a spiritual battle. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the idea of the battle and, and uh, scripture uh, tying in with that and w about the enemy. And we actually have three enemies. We're going to be focusing on one. But we thought in the midst of all that, it's good to remind us that the victory has already been won. And there are battles yet to be had. So we're going to sing a hymn, which some of you probably have memorized. If you have a green hymnal, it's hymn number 473. Four, 473. And if you have a red hymnal, it's number 370. So why don't you stand as you're able...
Would all of you have a seat? Would all of you mind just driving to Dexter every Sunday morning? <laughs> That's really good singing. I heard harmony. I heard some baritone over here. I heard some alto over there. I heard some monotone right back here. <laughs> wow. heard the monotone coming from this direction. <laughs> we have to stand close together because we are sharing one mic that they're recording. So if we just are like this all day, <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> so, um, Can I tell a funny story, though, just really quick? No, 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 I want to tell it. Hold it for me. What is this? Oh, no, no, I'm going to tell that. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. okay. Um, just tell you a little bit about us. Um, you know a little bit more about Should we math. Should the fans on? Um, but we uh, have been married, Matt and I, for almost 25 years. We're celebrating our silver anniversary, and it better be big. That's all I have to say. <laughs> As she's flashing her little tiny diamond. Um, so, <laughs> this is my fake diamond. It okay. isn't even my real one. So, <laughs> uh, so we've been, we have four children pray for us, all of them in college this fall. Um, pray even more for us. <laughs> Um, and so we understand about the spiritual battle. We had four teenagers all under the same roof. So, um, so we know about a little bit um, about this spiritual battle. The funny story that Matt wanted to tell was I went to a, um, a small Bible college up in Portland, Oregon, where I got my undergraduate degree. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, people here, I, I really should take piano. Maybe someday I'll marry a pastor. And everybody knew that pastor's wives had to play piano. And I... I didn't play anything. I played the radio poorly. So I thought I'll take piano lessons. Well, I took a semester of piano, and I figured this is just so not for me, that I would not marry a pastor. I would look for something. Well, and God, in all of his goodness, what did he do? He gave me a pastor that plays his own piano. God is good all the time. He knew exactly what I needed, and he wasn't going to put himself, God, I mean, through my years of piano. So anyway, so. We, we met at a wedding in Denver, and I was the soloist for these friends of mine from college, and Lee was leading a Bible study. She was on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, for 10 years uh, when we met. And uh, I she read scripture for the wedding, and I liked the way she read scripture. And it was a big setup from the bride who. Uh, um, so enough about us. Right. Enough about you. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons we opened with that song this morning is because we come um, this morning not from this position of um, fear and of having no power. We really come from a position of victory. Uh, really, the battle has already been won. Hallelujah. Uh, Jesus at the cross defeated Satan. So we start from a, from a position where we've already won the victory. However... For some of us in this room, we've forgotten that we've won that victory. And we come from a position of feeling powerless and feeling helpless because we forget that we've already won. And some of us, if you heard me last night, you've forgotten that we're even in a battle because that's where I was. I've forgotten that this is definitely a battle. Matt has a story that was told to him by an, um, an African woman. She claims all stories come from Africa, and I kind of believe her the way she tells them. There once was a man who had a dream. He dreamed of the perfect house for himself 
and he drew up the plans, and one day he started on his dream house. He spent everything he had to build his dream house. There was nothing left over. So that man built the house, and it took him many years, and it was everything that he wanted to be. And after it was done, he lived in it for one month. And then he had to sell it because he had no money. He was so in debt. And he found someone to buy the house from him, which was good news. But he was so sad. And he had this idea, and he said to the buyer, you know, I put so much into this house. It was my dream house. I just ask that you let me have one nail that I could hang my hat on. And the buyer was kind, and they put it into the contract. And one nail that he had was on the front porch. And so the man who built the house, he loved to come and hang his hat on that one nail that he still owned. And he'd stop by once or twice a month, and it w seemed to work out. But he still wished he had his house back. That's why one day, when he saw a donkey dead on the side of the road, he had an idea. He dragged that dead donkey back with him, and he hung it on the nail. The man who now owned the house was a little put off, like, there's this dead donkey here by the front door. But after all, he didn't own the nail. And so he really couldn't say anything. So the donkey stayed there. Well, after four weeks, the donkey stank so bad that the man who bought the house had to leave the house. It was making him sick. So he gave up the house, and he just left. And the man who built the house moved right back in. You know, that's how sin works, and that's how evil works. Even when we give our lives to Jesus and we become Christ followers, you know, I give Jesus my life except for this one little nail. Lord, just let me hold on to this one grudge. After all, you know that person hurt me. One little nail with a donkey on it can stink the Holy Spirit right out of your heart. Our oldest son, um, Hunter, had a room in the basement of our house. And, uh, and so he was, all the rest of us were on the first floor, and he, he had a room in the basement. And um, being a little bit of a chicken, he slept with a golf club uh, right next to his bed so that when that Dexter mass murderer came in, he would have defense against whatever came at him. So he had this club. Now, on the other hand, Matt... Um, never even hears anything. So when I, with my um, bat ears, hear something in the house, I shake him awake, and groggily he climbs out, uh, not armed, mind you, to go look for that mass murderer that I am convinced is in the house, and, um, or maybe the raccoon that's on the back porch, but still, you need something. And so he goes out without anything, you know, in his hands. So Hunter is always armed and dangerous. Okay, he's got this golf club. Well, we, um, in the same way, need to be armed and dangerous. And the Bible gives us a way to be armed and dangerous. 
And Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, told us exactly what we need to be armed and dangerous. Some of us are going around just kind of trying to get through, not even being able to see, and others of us are, are already armed. We need to be armed and dangerous in this battle that Jesus is, has talked about in his Gospels and Paul talks about, because it really is a, a battle that we face. Because it really wouldn't be um, much help if we needed something to help us in a battle and didn't have what we needed. The question I'm asking you this morning is about being defeated. When was the last time you felt defeated? Think about it for a minute, and then I want you, if you want, I want somebody to share. When was the last time you felt defeated? I'll tell you the last time I felt defeated just to break the ice, because you need to hear from me again, uh, is uh, a, a few weeks ago in church on a Sunday morning, right? I talked about that last night. I, I, um, we've been doing this kind of building campaign, although we don't call it that because it's the 21st century. Um, we call it a giving initiative. But we want to build... A generosity initiative. Sorry, yes, thank you. So it's not even about giving. Uh, we want to build some additional space at our church. And, um, and we we're taking a vote for it. Well... 260 people voted for, and 31 people voted against building, or moving forward to the next phase of our building. And even though those 260 some had voted yes, there were 31 who didn't want, and I thought, and they're vocal, you know? And I thought, I thought, well, are we really doing the right thing? Mm. Is, this what, is this really what we felt like God was asking us to do? I started to get these doubts in my mind, and on a Sunday morning at church and thinking, is this right? Are we doing the right thing? God, did we misunderstand what we felt you were leading us to? And I started to go kind of spiral down into this idea that I was defeated. I was wrong. I wasn't doing what God was asking us to do. What about you? When, when was the last time you felt defeated? We just um, went through a situation of spending a lot of time doing our work together. And on Wednesday, we picked them up. And our friend, we were in Bud Alabama, passed away. The whole back of that book are significant ordinary people and their families that have been invested in the servanthood of this camp. Well, as it would be, we looked for Bud Alabama's family opened the book to go there, somewhere between the lady who wrote it, but we put it together to the printer, the PDF file of the Bud Allenbaum family had been left out. When we took a step, everything mm -hmm. happened, we felt really discouraged and defeated. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Great. Wow. What else? Anybody? One night, late, dark. We're in the house doing what families do. We're in different rooms. And uh, <laughs> now you can be in the same room. There was a knock at the door. And so everyone said, There's a knock at the door because you're not really used to it. You're just not used to that. You're just not used to it. So I went to the front door and there was a guy out there and he was wearing overalls and he had no shirt. It was nighttime, it just struck me on. And he said, can I come in and use the bathroom? Sure. 
came in, used the bathroom, and then as soon as he went into the bathroom, my thoughts went, I wonder what kind of a guy this is. <laughs> That's powerful. It shows you the wrestling match that goes on inside every one of our hearts and minds at every opportunity. I think that Paul anticipated um, that we would feel defeated. In his letter to the church at Corinth, if you open your Bibles, if you brought them with you, 2 Corinthians We have a couple extra if somebody wants one. 2 Corinthians 4. In the word quite a bit this morning. That's why they call it a Bible study time. Isn't that good? <laughs> um, so you might have them out, and I, we're even going to ask you guys to read um, a passage out loud. But so turn to, to 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, verses 8 and 9. 
that out loud? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Great. So that's what Paul describes the Christian as, right? So you think, and here we go. I thought about this happy cloud-sitting life, walking with Jesus. Uh, you know, but what Paul describes is something completely different. I love what he says. Uh, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. I love how one um, uh, 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 version, uh, the message, I think, says, no, it isn't the message. It says that we're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. No one should love that. We're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. But those first, the first parts of all of those were afflicted, were persecuted, were crushed, we are forsaken, we are struck down. Those are the things that describe the Christian life. But Paul gives the other side of it when he says, but listen, you're not destroyed, you're not knocked out. There's hope for all of us. Paul describes what believers in Christ might experience if they walk the Christian walk. If they really fully serve Christ in all they do, this just may describe you. So that whole idea of feeling defeated, feeling in despair, that is not sin necessarily. That's what Paul describes is going to be part of our lives. But there is hope. There is victory. How do we do it then? How as Christ followers can we be expected to really withstand all of this pressure that comes and not be defeated? How can we stand up to all of that the world has to throw at us and still emerge victorious? That's what we're going to look at this week. Because I can promise you that it's not from knowing more. It's certainly not from doing more. It's not from spending more time at church. It, there's a way that... God has given us to stand. It's not because you're weak in your faith that you're being persecuted or struck down or knocked over. It's not your weakness. In fact, if you're weak in your faith, you're probably being kind of left alone. So what is it? it? The fact is, it's not about doing more. It's about being armed and being dangerous. It's about having an unbeatable defense. And we have that. We all have access to that defense. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 10. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, <laughs> verses 10 through 17. Don't go to Ephesians 10. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 through 17. And this is where we are going to camp this week. Okay, we are going to be spending the bulk of our week here. So read, uh, read along with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. 
Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer, verse 18 goes on, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand. You see, our, our, our struggle or our enemy is not other religions. It's not Islam. It is not the Muslims around. It is not any of that. It's not other churches. It's not other Christians. Our enemy is not our boss. It's not our teachers. It's not our children. It's not even, believe it or not, our spouse. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and tell them, you are not my enemy. You are not my enemy. You are not my enemy. So there you go. She's acting surprised. He's not a rule follower. He's not a he's not that kind of joiner. So our enemy, your enemy, probably isn't who you may think it is. Because our enemy is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy. And Paul tells us our, our fight is not with flesh and blood. He says it's the rulers, it's the powers, it's the world forces of this darkness, it's the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Turn back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Would somebody please read that out loud for me? At one time, you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to act like most people in our world do. You followed the rule of destructive mm. spiritual powers. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever you felt, whatever felt good, and whatever you thought you wanted to do that you were children headed for punishment, just like everyone else. Hmm. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says that there are really three things that controlled us before we became Christians. In that translation, you didn't get what all of those were exactly. One was the world. Uh, one was the flesh. And the other was Satan, or the evil one. It says that once... You were dead in your trespasses and sin. There was a time when those things controlled you. You were dead, and you walked according to the course of this world, of course, according to the course of the prince of the power. So it says that once the world um, was what controlled you, you were controlled by the world. And the world really refers to the system around us that's opposed to God. It's a society that is opposed to God. Do you see that? 
And the longer we go, the more opposed to God this world gets. You know, we, Paul isn't telling us that we have to go live in this commune or live at the top of a, a mountaintop or completely apart from the world. He says that's what you were controlled by. But you have to understand what we were controlled by. You have to understand who the enemy is. The enemy is the world. It's the world forces that are opposed to God and his word. We, were, we need to be completely aware of it so that we are not caught up in it. 1 John 2.15. I need somebody to read that. Would somebody volunteer? 1 John 2.15. Raise your hand if you'll read it. Don't make me assign you. Got it. Okay. I need somebody to read Romans 12.2. Someone? Got it. And then Galatians 6.14. Galatians 6.14. Got it. Okay. Read those when you get there. 1 John 2.15. Don't love the world. Easy. Don't love the world or anything in the world. Okay? What does it say in Romans 12, 2? You can probably quote this, I know. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay. Then you will be able to... You want to go on? Uh, d- no. No? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, just where you were. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not, just don't conform to the pattern of the world. What does the passage say in Galatians 6.14? (laughs) As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. Okay. So that enemy, the way that we used to live, these passages say, don't, don't let that world be what controls you. That world has now become really our enemy. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, is one of the ways to describe that passage in Romans 12, too. I think that's one of the hardest things about this battle. Is it's so beautiful. And it, and it was originally made by God, and there's so many things to love, but we forget that we're not of this world anymore. And maybe it's the North American, we have everything we could ever want, and we're very comfortable. So we've been made to feel comfortable in, in all aspects of the world, when, according to Scripture, there's a definite distinction, and we're actually not to be friends with a lot of those things that grab us. Sorry, I just thought I had to no, throw that whole, in. The whole idea about the, the world being a society that is opposed to it. It's not that you can't love the things that you have. You know, I, 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 I love my house. I love my kitchen. You know, I love, but, I'm, but it doesn't, it, that's not what the world really is. The world is the society that is opposed to God. And I don't want to be squeezed into the world's mold of being told that this is important, you know, money or status or whatever. Those are the important things. That's the the mold that I want to stay away with. So the world really has become our enemy. The other thing that that, um, Ephesians 2 tells us is that the flesh is is something that that controlled us before we came to be Christ followers. And it's our old nature. It's that, that, that nature that we inherited from Adam. And Paul tells us that our very nature 
that, that, that first nature that we had is opposed to God. I don't know if you see it, but I see it. And I see the inklings of my old nature in my new nature as a Christ follower. And I see this kind of opposition to God, and I'll stand up. What do you mean I can't do that? What do you mean I shouldn't say that? What do you mean I, I, I think it's fine what I just said or what I just did? That old nature creeps up. So this flesh is, is, um, is opposed to God. And it's the fact that apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot do anything spiritual to please God. Apart from a relationship with him. That nothing I can do. Somebody um, volunteer to read Galatians 5.16, please. Galatians 5.16. Who'll do it? Gotcha. Okay. How about Romans 13, 13, and 14? Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Go ahead. So Galatians 5.16. These talk about the relationship between God and us. What does it say in Galatians 5.16? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. What does it say in Romans 13? Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe, your, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay. That's our, our enemy is the flesh. Our enemy is that old nature that wants to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. That's one of our enemies. But there's a third enemy that we, I don't know, as United Methodists don't talk about a lot. I don't know how you talk about it in your tr tradition, your church tradition, but we have another enemy, and Matt's going to describe that one. With the three enemies, the flesh and the world systems and Satan, the fact is, I think there's so many of us that are caught up in our flesh that Satan can leave us alone. He doesn't have to bother with us because we're so caught up in our own attitudes. We're so caught up in conforming to this world that, that we're not even a target. And uh, one of the ways I heard the world systems described is taking all of our individual fleshly natures and organizing them, like the gambling industry or the porn industry. Um, so many uh, fleshly natures coming together to become the world systems. And we also need to know the world belongs to God. The world was given to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, in their image of God, with their ability to choose, gave up being the stewards of the world to Satan. Now, Satan is... Um, uh, I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is a really neat book called The Quotable Lewis. C.S. Lewis is probably my favorite. And he says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall to the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist who would say there is no such thing as a spiritual realm, or a magician who spends all their time demon chasing with the same delight. In other words, 
we have these caricatures of who Satan is. And whether it's just imagining little red tights and little red horns, or Fred Flintstone with the devil on one side and the angel on the other shoulder, um, and, and we just poo-poo the whole thing. But I want to share uh, uh, one other quote from Lewis, and this one is about sin. And this one comes from Mere Christianity. And I think it's kind of interesting. He's talking about uh, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, the pleasure of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport, being a spoil sport, the pleasure of backbiting, the pleasures of power and hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. One is the animal self, which is the, the, the lower sins of just the fleshly nature. The other is the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. <laughs> that's that's C.S. Lewis at his British best. Let me just say that last line again. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to I love that line. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I've got to remove people's faces who are coming to me when I say that. That's the sin of the flesh in me. <laughs> That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. Scripture talks about um, Satan. Scripture never talks about Satan. The medieval idea of, you know, the goat leg guy with the horns and the little pointy tail coming out his rear end um, is, I think, a great ploy to help us caricature, cartoonize the whole idea that there is a reality of this spiritual battle that either we completely ignore, which the enemy likes, or we completely get into and we see demons around every corner, which the enemy equally likes, because it sidetracks us from our goal of worshiping God of glorifying God. You know, if we say our goal as, as each as individuals, our goals in our churches, that our churches would glorify God, one of the best definitions that I've ever heard is to make God famous. To seek to glorify God means to make God famous, to magnify the Lord, the psalmist tells us. And if the enemy can do anything to defame God, Satan would love to do that. Now, there's a couple things that we need to understand before we look at some specific names of the enemy in Scripture. We need to realize Satan and God are not equal and opposite. We tend to give Satan too much power when we think that way. They are not equal and opposite. Satan is a created being. Satan is limited in knowledge and activity. Satan is not omni, like God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent, omnipowerful. Satan is more like a parasite. It, Satan would not exist without the reality that God has made. And 
another way to look at it is the idea that there really is no such thing as darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. There can exist no darkness if there is no light. There can exist no shadow unless there is a light source. And that's one of the ways that I find um, helpful to think about Satan. Now, when Paul was writing about the armor of God, which we'll unpack that throughout the week, we need to realize the Ephesians understand, they understood that there was a spiritual realm. We in the 21st century, um, actually probably more people believe it now than they did in the 20th century, back in the 1900s, as I like to tell my kids. <laughs> we, we did not really understand. We thought um, we were being fed that there, there um, isn't necessarily an answer. And one of the things that Tony Campolo said is, is we realize the limits of science because we have not defeated cancer yet. And all of a sudden, people realized there were things happening beyond which science could explain. So in terms of this enemy, beyond our sinful nature of the flesh, beyond the world systems of organized flesh, is kind of how I think of it, there is Satan. And there's two ways that we mess up, I think. We overestimate him, which creates fear and anxiety in our lives. When we already have the victory in Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that we do is we underestimate Satan. In other words, we, um, we prioritize what we can see over what we can't see. Does that, I don't know if that reflects you, but it kind of goes with being friends of the world. I can see it, it's tangible. We prioritize what we can see over what we can't see. Anything that Satan can do, all the enemy has to do is to keep us from praying and to keep us distracted from the things of God. That's all Satan exists to do, is to defame God. If you have put your faith in Christ, he knows he's lost you, but he wants to make you as ineffective as possible in glorifying God, in making him famous. So anything that Satan can do to divide us, to conquer us. That's the old way that armies won battles, divide and conquer. It's the same with Satan. He would love for you to feel nothing more than I am completely alone in my struggle right now. Anybody remember 1 Corinthians 10.13, beautiful passage, said there is no sin that has hit you that is not common to man. And God will not give you more than you can bear in temptation, but will always lead you, always provide you a way out of it. That is such a great verse to hand to people. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But Satan likes for us to feel completely alone and completely um, separated from everyone else. You know the old illustration of the coal that spits itself out of the fire is the one that cools down when the fire burns hot a long time. So as you um, are going through this, um, this study, for you to realize you are not alone could be the main, one of the main messages that you need 
to realize. Well, throughout scripture, there are many words for the enemy. And one uh, way that Satan is described is the devil. The devil means slanderous. And would somebody look up Ephesians 4, 25 through 27? And just say, I got it. Thank you, Aaron. Go ahead. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are still angry. Do not put, do not give the devil a foothold. Mm-hmm. It's just one little nail that I want to keep for myself. But that's all the foothold that Satan needs. And anger pulls us apart. Sin pulls us apart. Um, Frederick Beekner had a great illustration of sin. And Satan will take one sin and he wants the effects of that sin to be as maximized and long-lasting as possible. One slight that, from you to someone else. He wants the life of that sin to last forever. And so he will use whatever slander he can to make that sin last and have the biggest impact that it can. Um, and, and so Satan is slanderous. And when we fall into that kind of anger, when we nurse it, that's when um, Satan gets a foothold. Satan is also called an accuser. Would somebody take Revelation 12, 7 to 11. Someone say, I got it. Twelve, uh, seven through 11. Thank you. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down. The old snake, who was called the devil, the deceiver of the whole world was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accused them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. They gained the victory over him on account of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives didn't make them afraid to die. That was great reading, Carol. Thank you. I've got goosebumps. Satan, the adversary and the accuser. About 13 years ago, we went back to seminary and I worked on this demon, not demon. <laughs> Some people might claim a doctor of ministry thing. And we went um, for this retreat. And one of the things that we did on the retreat was you could share what you wanted prayer for. And the people in your group, um, it was a room very similar to this, would lay hands on you and pray for you. And I asked for prayer um, because I wanted to do better. I wanted uh, to be a better husband. I wanted to... <laughs> Not that there was that much room to grow. I wanted to be... I wanted to be a better dad. I thought I should be further along in my life. I thought I should have written a book by now. I thought, given my folks, who a couple of you know are just phenomenal people, 
I thought I should not have the hang-ups that I do, given the blessings that I had and the family that I was with, and, and that God had just um, blessed me with this incredible wife, that I should be further along. I should have had a bigger church. I shouldn't be struggling with the same old sins. And I wanted prayer for that. And so we all gathered around in prayer. And one of the uh, other guys in the program, his wife's name was Jill Brew. She's from Texas. And so I sat in my little folding chair in the middle of the circle. And she's, she was one of the people that prayed. And she said, Lord, help Matt realize that that voice is not your voice. That was one of my biggest learnings of the entire year. That voice that says, you should be so much better than you are right now. You should be a joiner. You should be, <laughs> you should be further along in your career. You should have memorized more scripture, which is true. But you should, <laughs> you should be a better preacher. You should be a better husband. You should be a better father. You should be a better mom. You should be more loving. You should be more kind. All of that you ought to by now, given what's been given to you, that voice that is belittling you, that is telling you that you are not good enough, that is accusing you of why haven't you gotten this figured out by now, that voice is not God's voice. I was like, what? <laughs> if there is a voice that is ro uh, rolling around inside you and it is not God's voice, watch if it is not of God, it is not from God, that means it is from somewhere else. And if God, who is the center of the universe, is not speaking that voice into your heart, then know that you are under attack, if you want to use that language, which scripture does use. That there is this adversary and this accuser that you need to be done with. And you need to stop listening because that voice is not your voice. It's a vision that you can't forget. I mean, it's conviction. Yeah. When you're in this stuff going, yeah, I am bad. Yeah, I'm missing that and that and that. Yeah, I'm not doing that right. Now. Right. I should be working out more. I should be, right. All of that stuff, it, it is, <laughs> I want to say it's legitimate because it's real and it's realistic and it may be what other people are telling you too. But if it's not God's voice. And that's why we're going to talk about how can we equip ourselves with truth and with righteousness. You know, all these words that we get these images, you know, like we'll talk about that more tomorrow, but it's it is crazy. Satan's good at his job. Satan is not going to tempt me with Brussels sprout milkshakes. <laughs> Although the way they make Brussels sprouts now with like the bacon and grilling it, I, it's like one of my favorite things. But the way my mom cooked it growing up, like just boiled in a pot, like baby cabbages, you know. How many people know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Now I'm like, bring it on. I'll even substitute that for french fries. Oh, okay. <laughs> See what I mean? Okay. The adversary is the word that, that is used in Job to bring Job before God. 
a couple other words. The tempter is how Matthew describes Satan. Do you remember where? Yes, yeah, at the beginning of his ministry. Satan is coming, and he's saying, you can do this the world's way. You have power to turn stone to breads. You have economic power, you could call that. You have power over the temple. You could jump down. God's angels will serve you. And he's quoting scripture, misquoting scripture there. If you bow down to me, I, I own all of these nations of the world. If you bow down to me, they're all yours. And Jesus did not. Yeah, he was tempting. And then, you know, in Luke's version of that story, Luke writes, and so the tempter left him until a more opportune time. Which, does anybody remember when the next time of the encounter? Yes, he sets his face to Jerusalem. He's like, okay, this is it. And who is it that speaks to Jesus then? Says, Lord, let's put the brakes on. It's Peter. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, yeah. So the tempter is another word um, for the enemy, for Satan. Um, here's one. John, somebody, I'm going to give you three in a row. Um, so I'm going to call a verse out, and you look up one and just say, I got it, before you get there. John 8, 44. Somebody? Will somebody look that up? Thank you. 1 Peter 5, 8. Thank you. Okay. And then I've got two, uh, two more. Genesis 3, 1. Genesis. She picked the easy one. How about this one? Revelation 12, 9. I want to hear that one one more time. Revelation 12, 9. Are you still there, Carol? Okay, you got that one. Okay, how about John 8, 44? Well done. A murderer and a liar. Why is it that we have this image that, that that's where the party is? That Satan is the partier. A mur Satan is a murderer and a liar. Jesus is saying that. We tend to think of, of Christianity. I think this goes with sort of the world thinking. We tend to think of, of Jesus as like the... the Boring, grim, dull, joyless one. We tend to think of Satan as like the partier and the fun one. We have it completely opposite. Completely opposite. Jesus was accused of partying too much by the religious people of his day. His first miracle was turning water to wine at a wedding. His mom says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he's like, Mom, what do you want me to do about it? It's not my time. She blows right past that and says to the servants, listen to him, do what he says. That's good advice right there. Yeah, some of us don't take time to celebrate enough. 
And we think the party is where Satan is, but Satan is nothing more than a murderer and a liar. Jesus describes he heaven more than anything. It's like a, a huge Thanksgiving dinner, a wedding feast, a banquet that goes on and on with a place at the table for us. That's kind of what we picture Satan, you know, hell is like the partiers. I think it's the driest, grimmest. C.S. Lewis describes it as the gray town in The Great Divorce, which is my favorite book. Okay, next, 1 Peter 5.8. A roaring lion, not just looking pretty in a zoo or drawn in a picture of, a roaring lion who's doing what? Seeking whom he can devour. Do you realize God wants humans in heaven? Satan and his angels want cattle to eat. And if they can turn us bit by bit from fully human to where there's nothing left because every sin, every, everything that we do picks apart our humanity until there's nothing left. Heaven was designed for people. Hell was designed for Satan and his demons, or his angels as they call it. The more that Satan can pick us apart so we're nothing but cattle for him to feast on, that's the, how serious this dichotomy is. Okay, the next one, Genesis 3.1. Satan is cunning. The good news is God made men and women to survive cunningness. Satan is crafty. Shrewd, another translation, yeah. That's exactly what you're saying. That's why we need to be fully armed. Okay, and then Revelation 12, 9, just one more time. The old snake, don't you love it? From Genesis to Revelation, right there. One other thing is, um, uh, just a couple more. The angel of light, speaking of craftiness and cunningness. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. Somebody have that? It sounds so good. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan has come to our culture to, and he has made the good seem bad. And he has made the bad seem good. You know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, do you remember it? the servants? There's so much in that story. But the servants bring it. The master of the banquet tastes it. And he goes up to the groom and he's like, dude, what's the deal? 
You're supposed to serve the good stuff first, and then when people are feeling no pain, you bring out the cheap stuff. But you brought, you saved the best for last. But you know what? That's the difference between Satan's banquet and Jesus' banquet. Satan will do everything to, he can to get your attention and to get you to love it the first time you try it. But then it's going to take more and more, and it goes downhill from there. With Jesus' banquet, you say he saves the best for last. That's the angel of light. Now, the good news to wrap up this part is um, Satan has been, and I'm just going to give you these on account of time, um, if you want to jot these down, Colossians 2.15, Satan has been disarmed and embarrassed. Satan has been overruled in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. Oh, Satan has been overruled in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. Satan has been mastered. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Satan has been rendered powerless in Hebrews 2, 14. He's nothing more than this little parasite. And for Satan, all his hard work has been destroyed. That's in 1 John 3, 8. The good news is, is there is good news. <laughs> That's the best news of all. And some of those passages that Matt just gave talk about that good news that we have. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen, the battle has been won. At, at, at salvation, the battle was won. We have everything that we need to live a godly life. But Paul knew that we would face tribulation, and he knew that there would be hard times. He knew we would be de feel defeated. So we are operating not um, from, a, from a, a need to be victorious. We are operating from a, 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 the, the point that we are victorious. Mm. We're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. And Paul gives us all that we need. And he says this. He says, stand firm. Be strong in the Lord, chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10. And in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God. Listen, he says, put it on. He didn't go say, go out and find it. You know, work for it. If you study long enough, if you go to seminary, you'll know about all this. He says, put it on. It's right there for you. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against all of those things. It's against what we found in scripture. Satan. The same name for the devil. The same name for the adversary. That is one force that we fight against. And it's not just Satan. He's not working alone. He's got all of these other minions working with him. So he says stand firm. Mm -hmm. so that you may be able to resist 
the schemes of the devil. Let me ask you, what are some of the devil's schemes? Where does he hit you? Where does he get you? How does he attack? How does he attack? Condemnation. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good one. What else? Regret. Re regret, I heard. What was the other one? Rejection. Rejection. Boy, both of those great. Regret. Isn't that a huge one? Wish I'd have done that differently. Blew it. Can't go back. No, it's over. Done. What else? Cast doubt. Loneliness. Loneliness. Perfect. Perfect. That's that divide and conquer mm -hmm. that he loves to use. How else? Comparison. Comparison. Jealousy. Ooh. Anger. What else? Inadequacy. Oh, golly. Inadequacy. Uh. Yeah. Discontent. Discontent. Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, yeah. Pride. <laughs> I know none of you deal with this. What about worry? <laughs> Anybody wake up in the middle of the night, unable to go back to sleep? Yeah. Worry. Mm. Yeah, what? I wake up and not able to get back to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thinking things. I think confusion or uh, mm -hmm. should I do this? Should I not do it? Should Absolutely. I say this? Should mm -hmm. I not Like two-mindedness. Yeah. Unsure. Being, just being unsure. Not knowing what to do. So he gives us this armor. And he says, stand firm. Pick up this armor and use it. And we're going to, like Matt said, we're going to unpack that this week. So what is this breastplate? What are the, what is this belt? What are the shoes? What is he talking about here? And you're going to love it because we, um, we're going to dress up, not you guys, <laughs> and really not Matt, but, um, but we're going we're gonna to show you what these pieces are and what they do, because you know what? When Paul was writing this, he was, he was in a prison, and as he looked around, all he had to, come to, to look at were Roman guards. So that's where he pulled this information mm -hmm. from. He saw these Roman guards, and he said, I wonder what they use that breastplate for. Why does he have those kinds of shoes on? What's he doing with that sword? That's how Paul brings it to us. And when his readers in Ephesus read it, they thought, I get it. That's all we know are Roman soldiers and Roman mm -hmm. guards. So he uses this, this illustration of armor to show us how to live and how to stand against Satan. You, I was waiting for her to take a breath. I never take a breath. Our time is just about up. One last thing. Remember the, in like the, was it the early 70s or the 60s where people found these Japanese soldiers on these islands in the Pacific that still thought the war was going on? And we were like, what? And yet that, that sometimes that feels like us. The last thing I want to leave you with is you've already, um, you already have memorized one of the best tools for the idea of a spiritual battle going on in your life. And it's uh, probably one of the most quoted passages in the Bible. And it says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now we know God cannot be tempted and God does not tempt anyone. So what does that mean, lead us not into temptation? Maybe this is your prayer between now and tomorrow morning. Leading us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Don't focus so much on, do you think that God might lead you into temptation? Just focus on the first two words. Lead us. If you're claiming God's leadership in your life, God is not going to lead you into temptation. But he's going to lead you to deliverance. He's going to lead you not into temptation, but lead us into deliverance from the evil one.